go to Romans 8, look at verse 29. If anybody ever tells you it's so easy to put together the sermons, after sermon, after sermon, after sermon, and you're actually dealing with the text, they're not being honest with you. We all know this text, and we all know it well. But this week was a struggle getting it together. Because to, every time I'd, I'd put it, something together, then I'd go back and I'd reread it. And I'm like, oh, there's so much more there. And then I'd go to the next point, and then, there, then I'd start digging in. And then I'd, like, and I'd go back and reread it and go, oh, there's so much more I want to say. And not to keep you guys here for two to three hours. So it's been, a, it's been a little struggle this week for this, this verse. So let's go ahead and read it. Romans 8.29, and then I'm going to pray. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, just come before your throne again now just to, to ask that you... Fill me with your spirit to preach your word here, Father. Uh, that you would make me invisible in, in the presenting of it. And to, to your people to see you high and lifted up. And, and Lord, and they need convicted, Lord, I pray that you convict them. They need edified, Lord, I pray that you edify them. And if there be anybody here that does not know you, Lord, I pray that you'd crush their stony heart this morning. And give them faith and repentance to believe upon Christ. We just thank you for your word that you've given it to us. Uh, you've given us the ability to, to read it and understand it, Lord. And you've given us the spirit to understand it. You've given us eyes to see, true spiritual eyes and true spiritual ears to hear. And we're so grateful for that, Lord. We don't want to take it for granted. We just ask for your blessings during this time, Lord. In the name of Christ. Amen. So... Just to back up a little bit, obviously Romans 8 here, Paul starts it out with there's no condemnation. These kind of the bookends of the chapter. No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Then verse, the last verse, verse 39 says, you know, there, nothing shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. So both the bookends of the chapter are that you're secure, really. You're secure in Christ. There's no condemnation and nothing will separate you from the love of Christ. But through that, we've, we've seen Paul dealing with the struggling of the Roman church, the early Christian church there, um, and how they would struggle or suffer with Christ, and that the Spirit was given by Christ to His people to come alongside and help in your suffering, to, to take that suffering that you also have to suffer with you. It says actually that we suffer with Christ. And it also says that we will be glorified with Christ. So you go from suffering with Christ to being glorified with Christ. And they're both together with Christ. And then we saw last week, it's not just suffering with Christ and, and being glorified with Christ, but it's that God works all things together too for your good. To them that love God, and to him, them who are the called according to his purpose. And now we get into this verse here. And I didn't deal with all Romans 8.28. I'll, I'll mention that here in a second. 
But the three points we have today, which I typically don't do this, but I could not find a good way to alliterate this except for the Greek. So the, the three points and I'll, I'll, is uh, prognosco is point one, prorizo is point two, and prototokos is point three. Now that, that means prognosco is known, we could say it like this, these are the three points, known, destined, or for, and firstborn. So let's get in, let's get into the first point here. Prognosco, known before. Before we jump into verse 29 though, let's remember that verse, I left verse 28, I left a portion of that all because I said that I believe that it ties into verse 29 and it would have been too much for us to handle. You know, we can get, uh, what do they say, drinking from, from a fire hose? You can drink from a fire hose for 20, 30 minutes, but it's hard to drink from a fire hose for two hours. So I decided to break it up and, and I left off a portion of verse 28. But there's two things in verse 28 that I believe tie into verse 29. First, if you remember, I didn't get into according to his purpose. The last phrase of verse 28. Because I believe verse 29 is his purpose. So it was according to his purpose. For, for God works, calls all things to work together for good to them that love God to them who called according to his purpose. And that purpose here is verse 29. So I didn't deal with that. But I also want to see something else that I also believe ties into our text here. And then I'll seek to develop it, this a little bit clearer. It says that God works all things together for good to them that love God. And if you remember last week, I quoted from 1 John chapter 4 that says, We love him. Why? Because he first loved us. I, I showed us that verse last week. So love starts with God from eternity. And then when the Spirit regenerates you and you believe upon Christ, that love is reciprocated to God. It starts with God in eternity. He comes, obviously sends forth His Son, obeys the law, dies in your place, rises from the grave, ascends to the right hand of the Father, sends forth His Spirit regenerates you, and then you love God in return. But he loved you first from eternity. And that's important for us. That's, that should be very important for us. Love starts with God. Love is love is alive in hell. Only God gets to define what love is, since he is love. And he says that we only love him because he first loved us. So love is not something that you muster up within yourself. You know, we see this. This is what our, our uh, um, music and, and movies and television shows and all this. There's so much. It's always a love story. But it's not really love if it doesn't start with God. Love is not something that you can just muster up within yourself. It's not something that we have as humans. It's not just sitting dormant inside of us and we, we just, when, when something happens, all of a sudden we decide to love. It's, love is not that. Love is actually fruit of the Spirit. It's actually the first one mentioned. The fruit of the Spirit is love. So no Spirit, no love. And remember that I mentioned then and again today that love finds its roots in eternity. 
is not something that God created when he created the world. He didn't create the world and then on, on day eight created love, right? <laughs> no, it, it, it finds its root in eternity, in God, in eternity. Now let's move on to verse 29 and start to develop this. It says, For whom he foreknew. For, for no, for new here is the word, it's actually the Greek word praegno, but that's just a, a different, it's an aorist active indicative of prognosko, what the point is, prognosko, which means to know beforehand. To know beforehand, prognosko. Y'all know of an English word that sounds kind of like that? With almost the same meaning. Prognosis. When you go to the doctor, what do they give you? A prognosis. You have cancer. And I can tell you, if you don't do something about it, you're going to die. They're telling you this beforehand. I know that this leads to this. Now, it's not the same way in which God knows. But it's a prognoscope, a prognosis. Now, let me ask you something about this before we, we see some other texts about this. Is God omniscient? Does he know all things? Is God all-knowing? Of course, right? That's basic Christian doctrine. That's basic Christian. When you become a Christian, that's one of the first things you're like, yeah, he's omniscient. I know that. It's just basic. But it's not, I wouldn't even argue that it's just basic Christian doctrine. I would argue that it's basic theistic doctrine. I mean by that, that it doesn't matter the religion. In order to be a God, he, she, or it knows everything. That's part of being a deity. Even false ones is part of being a deity. Even heretics and other religions affirm that God is omniscient. However, we're not dealing with them today. This is basic Christianity. We know that God that truly exists knows all things. That's what it's called, omniscient. All knowledge. He knows all things. And we believe that he knows all things because he's decreed all things. It's not just that he sits back and he's like, I can see everything that's going to happen. It's that he's decreed from eternity past everything that's going to happen. That's why last week I brought it out in Isaiah 46.10. It says he has declared the end from the beginning. And from ancient times of things that are not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. God does what he wants. He's decreed all things and therefore knows all things. So... Paul says, whom he foreknew. Wouldn't God foreknow everybody? If he's omniscient, that means he foreknows everybody, right? Hmm. Well, remember that question. But let's look at some other texts. Well, you hang on to that question. We'll turn up to Romans chapter 11. And verse 2. It says... God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? So, who's this talking about? Is it talking about everybody? Whom he foreknew. He's not talking about every single person in the world that's ever existed. He's talking about Israel, right? That's what it meant in this text. He is speaking specifically about Israel, the people that he foreknew. For new. He, he did not do away with the people. He has not rejected the people whom he foreknew. 
He's not talking about everybody, but he's talking about the Jews there. Now turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter 1, verse 19. It says, But with precious blood, this is talking about Jesus, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. This is speaking about Christ. Did God just know beforehand in a totally intellectual sense of his son? Like, I know him. I know him. That's not what it's talking about. There has to be more than that with, with this foreknowledge. It's not just, I know him. Yeah, I know the son. Yeah, I know there's Israelites. And the fact that foreknowledge that Paul even brings up foreknowledge here when basic Christian doctrine is that Jesus, or I could say Jesus too, but that God knows everything. I said Jesus because my mind went to where, who was it, Nathaniel under the tree? He said, you know all things. And Peter said it to him too. Do you love me, Peter? Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. But God knows everything, but Paul brings it up. He says the people that he foreknew. So there has to be something more to this. And there is. So let's see it. Remember the word, the, the point, prognosco. It comes from two words. It's a compound word. It comes from pro or pra, not bra. Pra, pra and gnosko. Pro or pra means before. And gnosko means I know. Now, the Bible uses gnosko in a few different ways. And let's see one of those ways. This is the way I'm going to argue that it is. Turn back to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew 1 verse 24. says, And Joseph arose from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. And he took her as his wife and kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Now listen, that's, that's NASB. KJV, I think ESB says it too, in verse 25, And knew her not. And knew her not. Now, there's a couple things we can learn from this. One, we can learn that Mary did not stay a virgin her whole life. There's a big church out there that teaches she remained a virgin her whole life. And this verse right here will tell you that she remained a virgin, as it says in, in uh, the NASB, that he kept her a virgin, which meant he knew, knew her not until after Jesus was born. What do, you think it, what do you think it meant? He knew her not. Like, I don't know who Mary is. What are you talking about? Mary? I never heard of her before. That's not what this is talking about. I think y'all get the idea. She was kept a virgin until after Jesus was born. And this idea is actually a Hebrew one as well. This wasn't just something that, brought, that Matthew brought up out of, out of nowhere, out of thin air. But 
You can look right back into the creation, right? And it says in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 1, it says, Adam knew his wife. And she conceived. Obviously, we know the idea there too, right? And actually, if you look, there's a, the Greek translation of the Hebrew text is actually the same word, gnosko, in Genesis 4.1. It's the same word, same idea. So this is the idea of an intimate relationship. It's not just a knowledge like, oh, I didn't know you. Now I know you. It's an actually intimate relationship. They, they conceived afterwards. There's intimate relationship. Not simply a knowledge of something about a person. Right? That's the idea in Romans 8.29 as well. It doesn't say for whom he foreknew would do something. Or for, for those whom did something he foreknew. He foreknew them. That's what it says. Personally, they're persons. He knew for whom he foreknew. Not he knew something that they would do or something that they would believe, but he knew them. Turn up to Matthew chapter 7, verse 23. This is a very popular uh, text here. But I think it also drives the same point home. Matthew 7, 23. It says, Jesus speaking here, he says... And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Do you think on the day of judgment when that unbeliever stands before Jesus, he's just going to be like, who are you? Where did you come from? I didn't even know you existed. John? <laughs> no, that's not what it meant. He's, he meant, I've never had an intimate relationship with you. We, and I would argue this. We can say, that's him saying, I never loved you. Who are you? You're a worker of iniquity. And Psalm 5 tells us that God hates the workers of iniquity. It's the same idea. It's this intimate knowledge. Not just a knowledge like, oh, I know who you are. I knew something about you. But I know you personally. That's what Jesus was saying there in Matthew chapter 7. We never had an intimate relationship. I never knew you. Joseph knew his wife. And Adam knew his wife. And it's the same idea here in Romans 8. Those whom he foreknow are those for whom God loved before the foundation of the world. Which agrees with 1 John, right? When he says we love him because he first loved us. His love was from eternity. He foreloved some of us. And those whom he foreloved, he also predestinated. And hence, why he works all things together for our good. Because he foreknows us, not our actions. That's not what this text is talking about, is it? Romans 8, it says, for whom he foreknew, not their actions. Now, he most certainly knows our actions, right? But, like I mentioned last week, let me bring it back out. My little pirate telescope. He's not going back in, in, in the corridors of time and looking down and saying, who is going to believe in me? Who is going to love me? Who is going to choose Jesus? That's not how it works. 
If he would just sit back and look through the corridors of time to see who would believe, who would love him, who would obey him, he would see nobody. Because none of us would. Oh, but we are now. Yes, we are now because he chose us. He regenerated us. He made us new. He given us new hearts. He placed us in Christ and given us faith to believe upon him and repentance from our sins. It has nothing to do with you. It has to do with him. He would foreknow nobody if that, that verse, if that's what that verse means. But that's not what it means. It's because he loved us from eternity past and in love predestinated us to adoption. Remember Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. In love he predestined us. So, prognosco is to be loved before. To be loved before. Before when? Before you were here. Before I was here. Before this world was here. Before time. Let's go to our next point here. I'm going to go back to Romans 8. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. The first point was prognosco is to know before, to be loved before. Pro, pro which is predestined. So this is actually the start of what some would call the golden chain of redemption. We see it in verse 30. Everybody, you know, you go to verse 30, that's the golden chain of redemption. I think the golden chain of redemption actually starts before verse 30. But he starts in verse 30 with predestined. Those whom he predestined, these he also called, and whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. That's what we call the golden chain of redemption. But I think we should start the golden chain of redemption with foreknew. Because he only predestined those whom he foreknew. He foreknew us, then predestined us. However, if we're speaking about the actions or thoughts of God, they wouldn't be one after another, would they? Because God doesn't think like we do. God is, all those thoughts, if you will, were all from eternity. They weren't laid out in time, boom, boom, boom. I'm going to lay it out like this. It comes from eternity because it's in the mind of God. But I think that we see in verse 30 that to God we are already glorified. That's what the text says. In his mind, it's already done. The mind of God is already done. This is why in Ephesians chapter 2 it tells us that we are already sitting with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We're already there in his mind. Why? Because... He doesn't see time like us. And in verse 30 it says, Whom he justified, he also glorified. Past tense. But we're not there yet, so let's not jump too far ahead. And how that, all that works, I don't know. How are we already glorified? I don't know. Will I know someday? I don't know. I don't care. <laughs> I know I'm going to be there worshiping So whom he foreknew or foreloved, he predestined. This word means to determine beforehand or of God decreeing from eternity. So he decreed from eternity. 
So he determined or decreed from eternity past that you be conformed to the image of his son. And he did this out of love. He predestined or decreed beforehand that you be conformed to the image of his son and he did this out of love. He foreloved you. This agrees, like I said, with Ephesians 1, 4 and 5 where it says, in love he predestined us. Same language. Same exact language. However, in Ephesians it's speaking about adoption. And here it's speaking about conforming. This all flows out of the love of God. Now listen to this. Don't let those that hate the doctrines of grace speak about them being un unloving when God says it's in love. God says in love he predestined us. There's those that hate the doctrines of grace that say that's such a hateful doctrine. Well, my God says it's in love. I don't care what you think is hatred. You know what's amazing about it? It's, it's in love. Well, the, the amazing part of this is you're not lovable. And neither am I. In love, he predestined you who was unloving, unlovable. We don't deserve God's love. But he gives it to us. We don't deserve it at all. Because we are his enemies. We hated God and loved ourselves. Yet, God still loved us and showed his love for us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This whole work of salvation, from foreknowledge to predestination, to call, to justify, to glorify, is all done in love. Let's see a little bit more of this. He predestined us. He decreed from eternity past. He determined before the world began that you, elect of God, be conformed to the image of his son. Now I know there's those that like to take this verse and run in some pharisaical mindset that you must become holier and holier and holier until you reach some certain degree of holiness and then, then finally then you have your final justification before God. That's blasphemy. They say that's what it means to be conformed to the image of his son. Let me ask you this. If that's what it means, that you have to become holier and holier and holier until you become the image of Christ, are you there? And if not, isn't God failing then? That's why I say that. You are the perfect, if you are the perfect image of the Son. I've, I've read that wrong. Are you the perfect image of the Son? Now, anybody that would make that argument, that's my question. Are you in the perfect image of the Son right now? And apart from maybe those black Hebrew Israelites that I talked to down there on, on the beach that said they were perfect. I don't know too many people that would claim that, right? Do you know anybody else who may be? Well, I'm not, but so-and-so is. Oh, really? Let's go, walk. Let's go follow them for a week with a camera. Nobody is. Let us not even have the thought that God would fail in this. This word is sumorphos. It means to conform together. 
We've actually saw some of some of this in a, in a, the prefix a few times in this chapter. That that togetherness we saw with we suffer together. We're glorified together. God works all things together. And right here, we're conformed together. That's what the word actually means. We're conformed together. Now, this is used only one other place in the New Testament. So let's go there and see what it is. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. Conformed together. Philippians 3.10. This is Paul speaking here. As he's in prison. That I may know him. And the power of his resurrection. And the, suffer, the fellowship of his suffering. Being conformed. To his death. Now let me tell you something. That you might not notice. In the English translations here. Um, but this is a verb for conformed here. In Romans 8.29 is an adjective. So it's not the same. You can't, you can't see them the, the exact same. But, but let's see a little bit of this. What, it says conformed to his death. How did that happen? What does that mean? Did that mean that Paul was gradually moving from one degree of holiness into another degree of holiness until he could be conformed with, with his death? I don't believe so. Since holiness knows no degrees. However, it's a dying daily. It was a putting to death the deeds of the flesh, right? But like I said, the picture with this isn't exactly the same because it's a verb compared to an adjective. Now look at verse 21 of the same chapter. It's the only other places to use. Verse 10 and verse 21. Right here. The same chapter. Who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. This is the same, same thing. Adjective here. And I believe it's the same idea. Let me ask you something. Is that going to happen? Is verse 21 going to happen? It says, Who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory? Is that going to happen? Yes, that is going to happen. Does that depend on you for that to happen? No, it does not depend on you. It's a description of what's going to happen to you. Now, going back to Romans 8.29, being that object, objective also, I can't even say the word now. It's more of just a description of what you'll be like. Just like in chapter 3 and verse 21 there. You will be conformed into the image of His Son. The word actually is kind of a cool Greek word. It's icon. You'll be conformed into the icon of His Son. So this is God predestined you to be conformed into the image of His Son, and it will happen. And I actually agree with Calvin on this. It's through suffering. That's what our context is, right? Our context is that you, you're going to suffer with Christ, and you'll be glorified with Christ. But through that suffering, you will be conformed together with Christ into the image of Christ. Listen to Calvin here. 
He then shows by the very order of election that the afflictions of the faithful are nothing else than the manner by which they are conformed to the image of Christ. And that this was necessary, he had before declared, there is therefore now, there is therefore no reason for us to be grieved or to think it hard and grievous that we are afflicted unless we disapprove of the Lord's election by which we have been foreordained to life and unless we are unwilling to bear the image of the Son of God by which we are to be prepared for celestial glory. That's the image of the Son, right? The suffering servant. Wasn't that what, what that was that was the preaching that he was going to come and he was going to suffer. He was the suffering servant. And now, Christian, that's you. You're here now, suffering through this life, being conformed into the image of his son. You go through suffering. You don't control the suffering, do you? If we could, none of us would suffer. Suffering start, we used to turn that heat back down. I can't stand it. God does. God controls your suffering. And God uses it to conform you into the image of His Son. God's doing The word for icon or image here is used to describe the inscription on the coin. In Mark 12, 14, or 16, he says, and y'all familiar with this, and they brought one, talking about the coin, and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Then he says, render to Caesar what's, he's pretty much done, pay your taxes. Quit trying to be swindlers. <laughs> but but you, what you saw there, there was a coin there, there was an icon or an image of Caesar on that coin. It really wasn't Caesar, though, was it? It was just his image. You ever hear that? See somebody do that kind of joke? Like, oh, is that you? No, that's just a picture of me. It's not really me. But that's what it was with the coin. It wasn't really Caesar on the coin, but it was a picture. It was the image of him. It was the icon of Caesar. But you could tell who it was by the coin, right? You could look at the coin and say, ah, that's Caesar. Now we wouldn't be able to today. But we'll be able to with our money, right? We can look at our money and say, oh, there's George Washington. But it's the same idea for us. That we're in the image of Christ. We aren't Christ. But you can see his resemblance among us. Right? And this is true of all Christians. God does not fail in this. And this is his purpose in predestination. As it says, for it is God that works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. He's the one working in you both to will and to do of his good, good pleasure. Brethren, God is doing this. And he will not fail. Our God will not fail. It's his work. It's his purpose. And we know that he works all things after the counsel of his own will. And none can stay his hand. My third point here. Prototokos. Firstborn. Let's go back to Romans. I'll read the verse again. For whom he knew, foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. 
And let me say this to preface this, that this is no way saying that Jesus was created. The firstborn is not in any way, shape, or form saying that Jesus was created. I know your JW friend will, by the way, post up right out here on the corner during the week. I know they, they will tell you he's the firstborn. He's the firstborn of creation, right? That he was made, that's not what it means. And I think we can see this firstborn in a couple different ways, or probably a few different ways. One is like the Nicene Creed. Y'all heard of the Nicene Creed? It's on our church website. It's one of the things that we hold to as a church. Though in the Nicene Creed, it's actually coming from the word monogamous, which is, um, there's debate on how to translate it, only begotten or unique one. But listen to what the Nicene Creed says. It says, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Begotten, not made. Eternally begotten of the Father. That's what it says. Now there's actually a big debate on this wording. And I'm not going to jump into that debate right now. It's a huge debate out there. But we must admit that Jesus is not made. As in created. But he comes forth from the Father. We see that through Scripture. We know this. And in this, and in this sense, we can say that he is the firstborn. Not as in made like we are, but as the first coming forth from the Father. But he has eternally come forth from the Father. How does that work? I don't know. He is eternally begotten. That's what, it, that's what the Nicene Creed says. I believe that's what scriptures teach. He is eternally begotten the firstborn. Now that's one way we can say this. There's another way though. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation 1 and verse 5. says, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the rulers of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. What an awesome verse, right? What an awesome verse. But look, notice what it says. It says he is the firstborn of the dead. He was the firstborn from the dead. Not only was he the eternally begotten son, the firstborn in that sense, but he is also the firstborn from the dead. He was in the words of John Gill here. He says, being the first that rose from the dead by his own power into eternal or immortal life. He was the first one to be raised from the dead by his own power. Now, yes, people were raised from the dead. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Before Jesus was raised from the dead. But Jesus rose from the dead of his own power. And guess what? When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he had to die again. What a bad day. Right? <laughs> Man, why'd you raise me? I already went through it. Now I've got to do it again. Jesus rose and will never die again. He's the firstborn. We could call this the first fruits. Y'all heard of the first fruits? 
Now, we don't practice this, but we should at least know about this. You know, in the Old Covenant, in Israel, they didn't have like Walmarts on every corner. They actually had to grow their own food. And in that was a picture of Christ. <laughs> Something so simple and mundane pointed them to Christ. They grew their own food as a first fruits. They would take a seed and they'd plant it into the ground. The seed dies and produces good fruit, right? Jesus actually used this analogy in John 12, 24. He says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. So let's go back to our picture. The Old Testament saints, the Old Covenant saints, planted their seeds, and up comes fruit. So now what? They, get a, they just consume all of it? Nope, that's not what happened. They gave the first verse to God. That was actually part of the tithe. They took, they planted their seeds, up comes the fruit, they harvest the fruit, and they give the first and the best to God. They don't get to just consume all of it. That was the first fruit. That was the first fruit offering. And this is a picture of Jesus. He died. It was planted in the ground, right? But he rose from the ground with that new body, that incorruptible body, and ascended to the Father as the first fruit offering. He was born from the dead and presented to the Father as the first and best fruit and was acceptable to him. Just like in the Old Covenant, when they planted in the ground, the fruit come up, they harvest the fruit, they gave the first fruits to God. Jesus, when he comes along, he's planted in the ground, he's dead, he comes forth, and he's presented to the Father as the first fruits, and it's acceptable unto God. You're like, oh, that sounds cool and all, but what does that have to do with me? Well, because this, he did this, you now will also. You, you now will be planted into the ground, and you will be risen, and you because you have been made accepted in the beloved, as it tells us in Ephesians chapter 1, you now can be presented before God because of what he did. Because he was the firstborn of the dead. Not only that, notice it says that he was the firstborn among many brethren. So he was the firstborn among many brethren. We will be among him. He's among us, and we'll be among him. He being the firstborn, the good and acceptable fruit to God, and you follow as being made accepted and beloved. This is God's purpose in predestination. It's not simply some doctrine that's out there that we, we get to debate, but it's something that conforms you to the image of the Son and guarantees you that you will be among his Son. Predestination is not the end of your salvation, it's but the beginning. If you've been predestined, predestined, you will go through suffering, which Philippians 1.29 tells us is a gift. To be conformed into the image of Christ, and you will be among him. And I'll actually argue that you're already among him. And he's already among us. 
Remember the, in John where it says, listen to this, this is kind of a cool thing if, to, to recognize, but it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's verse 1 of John chapter 1. But then in verse 14, it says, and the Word became flesh. Who is this talking about? Jesus, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. The Word took on flesh. And then it says, and dwelt among us. Same language, right? He dwelt among us. He took on flesh. God was the Word. The Word took on flesh and dwelt among us. The actual word there means tabernacled among us. He tabernacled among His people. That literally happened. And I argue that it still happened. Not in all that same sense. The Jesus doesn't take on flesh now, come down to earth and tabernacle among us. But He is tabernacled among us now. He's still among us. He said He would be with us until the end of the age. How is that possible? Because He's among us. He's tabernacled among us. It says in Revelation 21.3, it says, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. And He shall dwell among them. And they shall be His people. And God Himself shall be among them. That's now. This is the same thing that John taught us in chapter 1. That He tabernacled among His people. He's tabernacled among us now. He is here now. Y'all think about that when you walk into to a church service. God's here. It doesn't matter with all this other stuff, right? God is here. You're like, well, that's future, Jeremy. Well, if you say that, I'd like to point you to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. In verse 16, it says, What agreement had the temple of God with idols? For you, you, church, are the temple of the living God. You are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Church of Corinth. All kinds of issues going on. But this is the second letter where they had worked out some of those issues because he wrote the first letter and pretty much told them, y'all, crazy. But then they got worked out. And he tells them that you are the temple of God and God is dwelling in you now. First century church. There's not a warning from Paul for our present day. It was a warning to that present day back then. And it, by extension, it's still a warning to our present day, right? That we are not to have agreement with temple, with idols being the temple of God because God is dwelling among us. You see, all of this answers the question of verse 28 of Romans. The purpose of God. This was the purpose of God. It was because He foreknew you, He predestined you to be conformed to the image of His Son, and you will be among Him, and He is among you now. And we should rejoice in that. We should... I don't even know the words. We should, we should overly rejoice, super abundantly rejoice in that, right? Let me close with here one of my favorite verses. 
if you want to turn there, I got it right here, but it's uh, Zephaniah 317. If you have a phone, I'm sure it's a lot easier. Zephaniah 317. says, the Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. Y'all agree, right? He's about to go, he's about to take you off the deep end here though. But y'all agree that the Lord that is in the midst of us is mighty, right? And he will save. We agree, right? Yes. You're like, yes, amen. But look, now listen, he will rejoice over you with joy. He will rest in his love and he will joy over you with singing. He just went off the deep end, right? <laughs> like, I, I agree. We're going here. And then I, now you're saying God's going to sing over me? That's what the text says. He has joy over me? That's what the text says. For whom he foreknew. That is true about them. That he is in our midst and he is mighty. He will save, he will rejoice over us, he'll rest in his love and he'll joy over you with singing. The one in your midst is singing over you. He, as we'll see next week, not only predestines you, but also calls you and justifies you and glorifies you. Do you think for a second he could lose you? This is what Paul's showing us. This is where Paul's taking us in Romans. It's the book into the chapter, remember? That's where Paul's headed. There nothing shall separate us from the love of God. So let us not take predestination for granted. Let us not grumble in suffering, for they are for our conforming. Let us look upon the firstborn among us and rejoice in him. Amen call to faith and repentance this morning as always I go to the, the person here that does not believe upon Christ and this whole message probably sounded like gibberish like uh, children wouldn't know this but wasn't it peanuts for the teacher that's what the message sounded like. We know when I, before I was believing, that's what all preaching ever sounded like to me. And like, I don't even know what the guy said. I don't know why y'all go there and listen to that boring stuff. And it didn't even make sense to me. That's what the message would sound like. All the words meant nothing to you. And I'd say that as an unbeliever, they won't. However, God has you here today to hear the message. It's not an accident. It was decreed by God for you to be here. And for a reason. To hear the word of God preached and to hear the gospel message. Now you may not listen to a single word of the whole message, but you might die today. And you'll have no excuse on judgment day. You'll say, you will not be able to say, I did not know. I never heard that before. Yes, you did. On this day. Don't let that be you. Don't die in your sins. 
God sent forth his son to fulfill the law that we all break and we can't keep. And we break it every single day. Even as believers, we break this. But as an unbeliever, that's all you ever do is break the law. But God sent forth his son to fulfill that law, to keep that law, and to die for the sins of his people. And to save them from their sins, as it says in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21. There must be punishment for sin. Even one sin. Just one sin. But they are white lies. That was a white lie. No, it wasn't. It was a lie. It doesn't matter. One sin is enough to earn eternal punishment. Because you broke an eternal law. Paul says in Romans 4, he says, But blessed is the man to whom the Lord doesn't impute his iniquity, his sin. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute his sin. Jesus paid that punishment for his people. And their sins are imputed. That just means counted to. They are counted to him on the cross. When he was on the cross, my sins were placed upon him. And God the Father poured out his wrath upon him. To pay for my sins. He was dead. And as I already mentioned, he was planted. He was buried in the ground. And he is risen from the grave, defeating death. Being the firstborn from the dead. Then ascended to the right hand of the Father and sat down victorious. <laughs> There's not a better message. There's not a better message. You wake up every day and you think about that message. There's nothing better. But now, he's commanding all men everywhere to repent and believe upon him. This is why we go out and evangelize, right? God's commanded all men everywhere to repent. So I'm calling you this morning to believe upon him before you leave this earth. And that could be today. See, we, unfortunately, we don't think about that enough, do we? You know, in our day, we don't think about it enough. You know, if you ever read about like the Puritans in that time, like they may have had 13 children and 10 of them died. And people were, were dying at 30, 40 years old, right? We think, oh, we got 80 years, we got 90 years. We don't ever have to deal with death. We don't have to see death. And when we do see death, we, we dress them all up real nice, put a whole bunch of makeup on them so it doesn't look like death and it doesn't smell like death. But death is all around us. And we're all headed there. So believe upon Christ now. Sorry, I rabbit trailed a little bit there. To the believers here. Is this reality of predestination something that gives you comfort? When you think about the, the reality that you have been predestined, does it give you comfort? Or just an area of debate? Or simply just something cool to think about, right? This is one of these cool doctrines. It's fun to talk about. It's fun to debate. Predestination comes forth out of love. And I know sometimes we think about God and we think that he's some stoic with no emotions or no, no affections, is what I should say. We think God's just no affections. He's just some stoic out there. That's not what the, that's not what the scriptures teach us. That's a false idea of God we have. He loves us with an eternal, everlasting love. One that cannot change and will not change. His love will never change for you, believer. 
If he has loved you from eternity past, he will love you for all of eternity. And that's why he predestined you. It's not just some cool doctrine to debate or use as a hammer against the synergists, but a doctrine that is real and present in our lives as God is displaying his love for his people by it. And I want to call you this morning to rest in this doctrine. Because it's through that that you know Christ. God didn't just predestine you to something, but to someone. To his son. And it's because of this doctrine that you would ever know him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons. This is Ephesians, listen. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. He predestined us to adoption through Jesus Christ to himself. Rest in that, brother, and repent of thinking that it's just some cool novel doctrine that we get to talk about, right? It is fun to talk about some of that stuff, but that's not the end of it. Theology is never the end. If that's all it is, it's just theology, and I have all my, my theology books, and I know so much about theology, but I never do anything with it. Do you have a new heart? You know, that was the problem with the, the whole idea of monks, right? They go, they go stay off in this tower, and they, all they do is learn about theology. God didn't call us to do that. You know what God's called us to do? Go out there. Take that theology out there. You'll see how well you know it. Or don't know it. Predestination is not just some cool doctrine. But it's to the praise of his glory of his grace. That's what the text says. It's to the praise of the glory of his grace. And you should be praising God for his grace that he bestowed upon you. That's what predestination should teach us. To praise God for the grace that he bestowed upon you. And this isn't just a Sunday morning praise, but a laying down your life praise, right? We all know that God didn't have to love us, didn't have to predestine us, didn't have to adopt us, but he chose to. And we don't deserve it. But praise God, he did it. For your good and for his glory. Let's move on to the call to war. It's our call to war. There's no, there's no commands in this text. The command, there, there's no, the text doesn't command us anything, right? It's stuff that's going to happen. We aren't commanded to be predestined or conformed. Here's what it is, brethren. Here's what the call to war is. Don't be afraid of the doctrine of predestination. It's a glorious doctrine. And one that displays the love, kindness, and grace of our Lord. That's what it just said right there in Ephesians chapter 1. It displays the love, kindness, and grace of our Lord. So be bold with it. We can be bold with the doctrine. I know that it's true. That's how I can be bold with it because God said it's true. But Jeremy, you said not to debate the doctrine. <laughs> Being bold doesn't necessarily mean to debate it, but to preach it. Don't be scared of it. You don't need to apologize for God. Unfortunately, that's what we had like to do. Oh, I believe this doctrine, but uh, no. God said it. I don't need to apologize for him. 
If he said it about himself, I'm comfortable saying it to you. Don't shy away from it because some hate it, but preach it because it displays the love, kindness, and grace of our Lord, even if they hate it. And I'm not saying don't ever debate the doctrine either. There may be a time to do it, but it takes discernment to know who to do it with and when to do it. But preach it. If God revealed it, clearly we shouldn't be scared of it. I've heard actually many preachers say they believe in the doctrines of grace, but then say I don't or I can't preach it to my congregation because they won't understand it. God's not giving me that insight on you guys. I think his word tells the preachers to preach the whole counsel of God. He doesn't give me the insight to know if you can understand it or not. Because, you know what? I wouldn't understand one word of it if it wasn't for him. It has nothing to do with how smart I am, but with what the Spirit has revealed to me. Therefore, God's commanded me to preach every, the whole counsel of God, and he will give you understanding. Not just the parts I like, or I think that you might like. And why would such preachers hold back doctrines that are meant to give God's people rest? Right? The doctrines of grace are there to give us rest. And they say, I don't want to preach that to my people. They want to preach law. Because that's typically what the congregation is like, right? They want their ten ways to do this. Ten ways to a good marriage. Five ways to this. Seven ways to this. How about one way? Jesus Christ. The way, the truth, and the life. I won't hold back these doctrines. If it's here in the text, I'm going to preach it. But on the other hand, there are those that only preach this, these doctrines. That's all they ever preach. Doctrines of grace. Every week. Week in and week out. Doctrines of grace. Just preaching predestination election over and over again. Week in, week out. Shame on them for doing that too. Here's the deal. Paul, in preaching this, is only doing it to point us to Christ. Paul, in bringing this out, is to point us to Christ. You can see, and I, I should look, look, I have it, I think, outlined in my the Bible. Um, but whenever Paul talks about preaching, it's never a subject. It was always a person. It was preach Christ. Whom we preach. He says it over and over again. To whom, to whom we preach. Whom we preach. I preach Christ crucified. And it was never a subject. It was always a person. It wasn't just to, to, to teach you different subjects. But it was to point you to him. And that's what this doctrine should do too. It should point us to him. We weren't just predestinated. But we were predestinated to him. In him. Through Him and for Him. It's about Him. It's about Christ. It's about preaching a person. So if our, in our preaching it's always about a subject and not Him, our preaching is wrong. Now I call you, brethren, to take the message of predestination out, but to do it with the intent to preach Christ. That's what it should start at, and that's what it should lead to. 
Predestination starts with God and it ends with God. So go forth with that. Amen.